Welcome to the Earn Your Marks podcast, presented by Pro Exam Tutors, the only podcast you need to pass the CFP exam and become a certified financial planner. Here are your hosts, Sam Maneshian and Nelson Green. Okay, well, welcome to the Earn Your Marks podcast. I'm Sev Maneshian, certified financial planner with Pro Exam Tutors, and very excited to bring with uh, have on with us today Avo Mavillian. Uh, Avo is a good friend of mine, also business partner. He's an enrolled agent. He is a special needs uh, consultant, chartered special needs consultant, I should say, and a wealth management certified professional. So, Avo, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on, Seb. Sure. You know what? Uh, what I figured, and thank you for coming on. What I figure we do today, you know, to to help those that are studying for the certified financial planner exam is uh, use your background uh, and your deep understanding of life insurance and estate planning and taxes and tie some of the topics together that the students have to know about. So, you know, it would be a conversation that goes, I mean, we can certainly talk about some of the uh, more simple topics, let's say like term or permanent insurance, although there could be complexity in permanent insurance, as we well know. Uh, but some some other things, what I figured I'd do is ask you some other topics that are relevant to the uh, relevant to the exam, but also for those listening that it's relevant to in, 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 in a real life, in real life scenarios as well. So how does that sound? Let's, let's do it. Okay, so let's, why don't we start from here? And this might be a little bit more on the academic side, but I can mention we're, we're going to turn into the real life as much as possible. When we're looking at two basic types of life insurance policies, we've got really you know two groups. We can talk about term insurance, and there's like subcategories under there, um, and then we have permanent insurance. Can you talk a little bit about you know the differences and why you would suggest a client uh, have a term policy over a permanent policy or vice versa? Sure. Look, there's a lot of theory out there. There's a lot of literature out there, and there's a lot of uh folks out there who've been doing this very long time and they'll have their opinions on it. So right, what of course. Share with you is from my perspective of actually doing this as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and depending on the market that you're working with. So in, in my case, I, I tend to work with more affluent clients. Correct. And so, but it, so what, what I'm sharing with you is from this, th that perspective. And typically when we're talking about a term policy, mm -hmm. we're trying to accommodate an insurance need or death benefit need for a specific period of time. So for example, if you have a business owner client who's trying to get an SBA loan or any kind of a loan and yeah. the lender wants some kind of protection, it's a cost center. They're not doing this necessarily for any other reasons than to satisfy a particular loan event. Okay, so let me just uh, let me just add to that just for a second because we're okay. gonna if let's say uh, let's add, let's say I start a dental office or so whatever I'm starting a business but let's just use a dental office uh, as an example and uh, I'm gonna take out a million dollars why because I have to buy equipment and you know I'm gonna hire staff I need some cash flow but it's a million dollars and let's say I have some assets will the bank actually give me a loan if uh, if um, if my net worth is like a hundred thousand dollars, like is that the reason that they're going to require that I have like a if it's a ten year loan, 
they're going to, is that the reason why they're going to have me purchase? They're going to force me to purchase a 10 year term policy as an example. Is that correct? Yeah. So I mean, think of it from a lender's perspective. We're, we're giving somebody a million dollars in a loan. And what we're worried about is this business is dependent on this person that's borrowing being alive. Right. So let's use your dental practice as an example, right? Mm-hmm. So if the dentist dies, how do we get our money back? And so what mm-hmm. we want to say is, okay, you got to buy insurance and we like life insurance because it's instantaneous, right? We get the money right away. We don't have to sell your assets. We don't have to fight your estate. You know, if you die, we get this money. So the bank's going to say, okay, we'll give you this million dollars, but we want collateral. Since you don't have the collateral, buy some life insurance. Yeah. And they're going to force the life insurance on you. So if I'm the dentist at this point, and let's assume I'm not looking at my personal planning needs at this point. I'm just trying to get this loan done. Okay, I want the biggest protection at the least cost. So I'm going to buy a term policy. So if the bank says it's a 10-year loan, I'm going to get a 10-year policy done, right? right. If it's a five-year loan, I'm not necessarily going to buy a 10-year policy. I may buy an annual renewable term or I may buy a five-year policy. Uh, right. But the term is specifically for that particular reason, that term that yeah. we're trying to protect. Right. Whereas a permanent policy, something that's going to stay with us forever, mm-hmm. we're using that more for planning purposes for obviously there's a death benefit need. But I like to think of permanent life insurance as the Swiss army knife of financial planning. Uh, why is that then? Yeah, because it's so flexible, right? It, it We could address a lot of needs and, and we could talk about this here in a second, but when I'm doing a permanent policy, it's I, I'm using it within the context of the bigger financial plan. Now, where I see problems is you'll have, again, I, I want to be careful how I word this, but of course, we have some folks in the industry that will say you should always buy permanent or you should always buy term, right? And there is no perfect answer. But oftentimes people who are needing term policy, they'll be sold a permanent policy. All right. It doesn't really match them. And I'll give you an example. Um, You and I both have young families. Mm -hmm. Uh, When that first child comes along, you realize all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, we better provide some protection because something happens to us. We, we, you know, we might not have enough saved up to take care of them until they, we get to childhood or to adulthood. So at that point, what I'm concerned about isn't necessarily, you know, having a cash buildup in my permanent policy. I'm most concerned with how do I get the biggest protection, least amount of cost as I'm starting my young family. Right. That makes so, sense. Yeah. And so, you know, at that point, term is a no-brainer just to get it on the books. And then we could worry about building on top of that as, as our financial situation changes. But it's, you know, to answer your question, long answer to a short question, the, the purpose of the term policy, right? Forget the merits of buy term, invest the rest and all that stuff. What's the purpose of the term policy? I have a specific need for a specific term period that I'm trying to basically protect whatever I'm trying to protect yeah, most right? for my buck for, I just want the most protection for the most, least amount of money. And it's, it's pure insurance, really. That, it's pure insurance for a specific need at a specific time without taking into consideration anything. Else. All right. And, and if things change, now it depends on the policy, but I could actually convert that policy later on. So for example, uh, you know, I'm starting out, maybe I have a medical practice. 
and you know i'm not making that much money i still need i still need protection because i have a younger family and just you know we've got a new house a new car to pay for and all this stuff but then things start to turn around in a few years a lot of times i can convert that policy into a permanent into a permanent policy you know so there's flexibility there there are different options with these these whether it's term or perm insurance there are different options that where we can where we can be flexible you know, so you're you're not always necessarily stuck with one type of policy, right? So, you know, once we get past the immediate need, you know, there, there's a lot of benefits to the term policy, right? As you mentioned, you could always convert it depending on the policy. Now, there are some non-convertible terms, so you got to be very careful. Yeah, right. But assuming it's a convertible term, one of the biggest benefits you're getting there is future insurability. Okay, and right. so if let's say you're 40 years old and you've got some kind of a health condition that prevents you from purchasing life insurance. Okay. But if in your early twenties, you had purchased a term policy, that's still within the conversion period. Mm -hmm. And now you have this health problem. Well, you could convert that to a permanent, uh, permanent policy, despite the fact that you're uninsurable at this stage. Right. So that, now that, Okay, and that, so and and then what I'm getting out of that uh, from what you're saying is that they're not setting they're not sending out a paramed to the home again. It's just convertible. You just call more or less. You call the company or fill out a form and One say page. a million dollar policy. I want it to be permanent. And and with that being said, you know we're going to start uh, possibly you know accumulating some cash value in that over time. Well, not just cash value, but if you think about how a term works, you're rates are guaranteed for a fixed amount of the term. If it's a 10-year term, prices aren't going to change for 10 years. Right. So if I'm paying $100 a month in premium, I'm still paying $100 nine years from now. Right. And so what you're doing is by buying a 10-year or a 20-year term, you're saying, I want the price to stay flat for the next X number of years. Yeah. But we go back to that scenario where someone's 40 years old and they've got maybe some kind of a... Uh, health condition and it's terminal and if they let the policy expire they're not going to be able to buy a new policy no after the term is over the, it's going to go up to the annual renewable term rate assuming that's allowable um what they're basically doing is they're saying they're converting to permanent policy knowing that they're going to be insured no matter what yeah they can be denied insurance so there, there, there are a lot of benefits to a term policy, but as I said before, you got to be careful. Make sure that you know it's a convertible term, obviously. Right. Uh, of the other of them uh, are. I mean, I mean, we. You're saying be careful, but uh, from what you and I have seen, it's you know most most policies automatically. It's just it's a convertible term. It might be for the next five years. It might be for the next ten. But of all the term policies I've seen, most of them have that convertibility. Yes, and written in there. Yeah, and what you got to be careful about is the ones that are not convertible. They'll actually tell you non-convert, non-convertible term. Got okay, it. and so as a practitioner, you got to be careful because those will be priced lower cost than the convertible policies. And yeah. so, if you have a client that says, you know, just get me the cheapest one, be careful because if you sell them a non-convertible term and later on they need it. Even though they said we don't want it, it, it could create problems. So, you know, understand that. The other thing 
that you want to watch out for is when somebody says to you, just give me the cheapest one and I'll just convert later. A lot of these companies will say you could convert to whatever permanent policy we have at that time. Well, if you got a carrier that has, you know, not a wide selection of permanent policies, even if it's convertible, it's limited to maybe not ideal policy when your client needs it. Whatever right? menu, whatever the, their menu is, and it just correct. And, and, and have different some, yeah, and and if you're basically going off the price list, and you see some a carrier that's the cheapest, well, they might not have the best conversion options. So really have to do a good analysis if you want to do due diligence for your client to make sure you take all those things into consideration when you're saying when you're recommending a policy yes price is one factor conversion options convertibility itself the financial strength of the company so on and so forth so um more more look more, more to it than just right. the price all right good and that's that's why to have a good well-rounded understanding even if you're uh, if if you are an um, aspiring planner, you want to be well aware of the different types of insurance out there. I'm not saying that you have to go out there and sell a policy. Some some individuals or planners out there will never sell a policy, but nonetheless, as a as a certified financial planner practitioner, we have to be aware of the different types of options that are that are out there. If you're on the consumer end, you also you don't have to be an expert insur in insurance, and you you likely you know won't have the desire or the need to be. And if you find the right person, uh, that can help you. But the thing is, you want to have a somewhat of an understanding of somewhat of an understanding of the type of insurance that that's uh, well that that suits you well. Um, with that said, there was something about convertibility I wanted to ask. This might not be necessarily convertibility, but uh, but it might be. If I'm at an employer and I have a, a, a an insurance policy that's provided through the employer, and I understand I get a discount on the premiums, now I leave that employer. Can I take that with me? Can I convert it automatically, or will that will that depend on the let's say like the master policy that's through that company? Yeah. So for what I've seen, there are two types of term policies that you could buy from your employer. One mm -hmm. is the group policy. Yeah. If you leave the employer, it doesn't go with you. But then the employer will allow you to purchase additional policy besides the one that they provide through the workplace. Depending on the setup, that may or may not. But for, for most people, what I've seen is when they leave, mm -hmm. that doesn't go with them. Now, what I've also noticed is because the employer-provided policy is a group policy, they're not taking the individual's rate in consideration. Everyone's getting a group rate. Yes. Oftentimes... Right the same price that you're paying at an employer's provided policy, mm -hmm. you can go to the private marketplace and buy the same coverage at a lesser cost. But now it's portable, it could go with you. So for example, you might be paying you know, $50 a month for a term policy with your mm -hmm. employer. You could probably get the same policy for $50 or less in the open market, but now it's portable, it's yours. So if you leave, that goes with you, conversion options go with you, everything else goes with you. And so you're not going to be in a position where if you leave your employer, you have this gap of life insurance. Yeah. Which okay. I could see that, that happening. And um, you're talking about, let's say if you get $50 per month at your employer and you go out in the market, that's provided that now 
you have to go through the paramed and the medical examination and you, know, you can't be at the too too far rated down the table you know, have yeah, to have look, standard health these, these days for what you know for the amounts that your employer is providing it's typically you know x number of times your salary right okay. so That's up you know now these days you could get paramed's waived for policies under a million dollars yeah right yeah, and and you know on the on the te on the testing side of thing that students have to be aware of that the first fifty thousand dollars of group term that's provided, if you're if you're not a um, highly comped or a key employee, it's one of the two, and I can't remember if it's both actually, but uh, then that the premiums that the insurance that the employer is paying to the insurance company on your behalf, they're not included in your your income. It's once you get above that death benefit of fifty thousand is that we have to impute that income. And there is a formula that students have to know, which we're not going to go over in this podcast. So, uh, but so, you know, so far so good, but I will talking about students. And, and once again, we're going to tie in the consumer on this as well, or the person that's needing, needing planning. Uh, so, so killing two birds with one stone, so to speak, uh, modified endowment contracts, you know, do you use them in your planning practice? And if you do, why do you use them? Like, what's the benefit? And let me add something else too. For some reason, MECs give uh, students that are sitting for the, the CFP exam, gives them fits. But let me just say this before you answer my couple of questions. With a MEC, you're not looking at a different, let's say, type of policy. So it's not like the insurance company is going out there and is and is advertising like, oh, we sell modified endowment contracts. It's just think of it this way. It's like a it's like a tax label that we're going to put on this policy. The bottom line with the max is that or the big thing to know with modified endowment contracts is the death benefit is still income tax free. Okay. So that it's just that if we're going to take distributions or if we're going to take a loan, there could be some consequences there, especially if we're under age 59 and a half. So, uh, but back to my questions for you, you know, um, you know, do you use MEX in your practice? And then, you know, what are, what are, you know, one or two scenarios where you use those? Yeah. So I absolutely use MEX okay. and do it on purpose. And so if, you know, you've probably heard in the past, people say, oh, be careful that it doesn't become a MEC. Mm-hmm are they talking about what they're talking there is as you described there's tax consequences if you take policy loans or withdrawals or cash out of the policy okay and so if someone is using a life insurance policy where they're funding it with the idea or the intent that they're going to take loans against it that could potentially be problematic but what is a mech a modified endowment contract is it's the life insurance policy that has failed the IRS test to qualify for the life insurance benefits of that's taxing. The, that's the seven pay, that's the seven pay test. Right. And so in certain circumstances, we don't care. Okay. So one of the cases where we don't care about a MEC for the most part is when somebody's over the age of 59 and a half. If you're under 59 and a half and we're going to take money out other than death benefit or an accelerated death benefit, yeah, we care a lot. But if they're past 59 and a half, we don't care as much. No, no time. But in essence, why would we want to structure something as a mech? Well, to understand this, you got to go back to the intent of Congress. So in the old days, what 
wealthy people used to do was put in a lot of money inside of life insurance contracts because of the favorable tax benefits. And then Congress said, wait a minute, you guys are putting too much money into this tax shelter. We're going to come up with rules that say for every dollar that you put in, you have to buy so much death benefit. And can you and can you back up just a second when you said that the there are some tax there's a tax benefit or benefits to to insurance policies? Can you can you briefly just give us uh, give us a rundown on that? Sure. Well, okay. So outside of incidents of ownership for estate purposes, mm-hmm. death benefits are tax free, right? So if it's not included in the estate, the death benefit is generally generally tax free. Or if I'm purchasing a policy, but you know we're not a business partner or so on, so if we don't trigger those transfer for value rules, then let's just say, generally speaking, you death know, benefits are tax free. the death benefit is for our conversation, the death benefit is going to be tax free. Right. Uh, but there's uh, another tax, uh, there's another tax benefit too, which I know you'll probably get to, but you're yeah. talking about another, another tax benefit of life insurance is obviously, excuse me, when you collect dividends from insurance policies, whole life policies in particular, it's considered return of premium. So there is no tax on the return of premium portion. All right. Um, If you have a life insurance policy and you draw loans against it, right? Mm -hmm. As long as the policy stays in force, those loans are not taxable because they're they're loans. Just like if you go to a brokerage account, if you have have a stock portfolio and you borrow money, you're, you're not cashing in your, you're not realizing any gains in your stock, but instead you're borrowing money. So that's not taxable income. Same thing like with a four, like a 401k loan for whatever you want to use it for. As long as you pay it back, it's not taxable income to you because it's a loan. The intent is to, is to pay it back. Right. So th- there are several benefits from a tax planning perspective. And that this is the whole Swiss Army knife analogy that I use with permanent life insurance that you could utilize. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to back to Mex. Okay. So basically Congress says, Hey, you're putting in too much money and you're basically using it as a tax shelter. We're going to create these corridors where there's only so much you could stuff in given the death benefit. So you don't abuse this tax shelter. So that you don't use this insurance policy, like, uh, like, it, like it's an IRA or something. It sounds like that's where it's like, Hey, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah supersized back to Roth, right? Supersized back to Roth. Supersized Roth, Roth right? You want to dump in all this after-tax money, and and you want to get tax-deferred growth. The IRS is still saying, or Congress is saying, yeah, sure, you can still do that, but there are going to be consequences. There, there, there's a cap. There's a cap if you do it this way. And so, with a MEC, what you're doing is you're saying, you know what? I don't care about one portion of the tax benefits. What I don't care about is taking the money out tax-free. I don't care about that. I'm not interested in that. But I am interested in the other part of the tax benefit, which is the tax-free death benefit, tax-free accelerated death benefit. Okay? Now, why would I want to put so much money into a policy? Well, let's go back and look at how insurance works. With a policy that qualifies as life insurance, mm-hmm. there's only so much money you could put in, which means part of it pays the death benefit, cost of insurance, the rest of the cash value has some kind of a growth component to it. 
Yeah, whatever, like the premium, when you pay the premium, part of it goes to expenses, part of it, or administrative, part of it goes to paying for the policy, whatever's left over gets dumped into the cash value. And then that, you know, that hopefully grows over time. Right. But with a mech, I could put in a lot more money up front, which means a bigger portion now goes to the cash value. So time value of money, compounding effect, I have more time for this money to grow. So I accelerate the growth. Okay. And if I do that and I set this up, I'm going to have some kind of benefit to the death benefit, either a bigger death benefit, which then I could also use bigger accelerated death benefit. So okay. as an example, okay, this was prevalent a few years ago when interest rates were very low. Somebody's got a hundred thousand dollars sitting in a bank account. CDs at the time were paying 0.1%. Basically uh, correct. Right. So you would take this $100,000, you dump it into a life insurance policy, mm -hmm. but make it a mech where you break the rules. So now you got, you don't have that corridor anymore, right? So you got $100,000 in, but the death benefit is now 150,000, very low compared to, and it doesn't qualify as for tax purposes, it's a mech at this point. Mm -hmm. But what happens is it's paying a 4% fixed interest, or it was indexed to the SNP, it was earning a lot more than what the banks were paying. Then, then 0.1%. Right. So even after all the costs of insurance, fees, et cetera, the net cash surrender value after a year, two years, three years, four years, was a lot more than what you would get as a CD. So even if you traded right. that policy back in, you're still way ahead. Right. And if somebody was over 59 and a half, we don't have to worry about a 10% penalty. Exactly. The income tax on the growth. So what? You're going to pay it on the CD anyway. And along the way, you got the death benefit in case something happened to you and you got the accelerated death benefit if you got sick. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that utility of that 100,000 sitting in the bank earning 0.1, if somebody got sick or died, it was worth 100,000 plus the 0.1% interest growth. Yeah. Inside of this life insurance policy, now they got $150,000 or $200,000 death benefit. So they got more death benefit and their money was growing a lot faster. Yeah. So that was one example of why you would want to use a mech. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's not something we have to be uh, afraid of. On the, from, the, from the client's perspective, it can certainly do a, a lot of good as long as they understand the tax consequences. And you're a perfect person to talk to about that because you're an enrolled agent. Um, and you have a financial planning, you have a financial planning background, of course, from the student's perspective, those sitting for the CFP exam, we just have to know that, yeah, that you could have a 10% penalty. We have to know that, you know, if we start to, to make partial distributions from that policy, the cash value, it's last in first out. So we're going to get a tax on the earnings and then potentially a 10% penalty if we're not over age 59 and a half. Uh, but it's not anything from a client's perspective or from a student's perspective to be a, to be afraid of. Uh, it's actually a very powerful tool. And, you know, I mean, the question that I asked you was, you know, I knew what the answer was going to be because obviously we're doing this for the audience because you and I, you know, on a handful of occasions, of course, then we've put clients into, uh, into policies that are classified as modified endowment contracts. Now, what I would do is that you can actually whether you're a client or prospective client or you're a student, you can go and look at your uh, look at a policy or you can just 
potentially look at one online and there's usually one page and it's like one sentence or two sentences devoted to one page on a policy that will say that this policy is a mech, you know, or on the illustration itself. So, so one of the things that I've noticed is if you, if you are funding a regular insurance policy and you've put in too much money, a lot of the carriers will actually send you a letter saying, Hey, we've got this premium that came in and we changed the date back to not make it a mech. Let us know if your intention is to make it a mech. So a lot of the carriers will actually give you that warning. Now it doesn't mean they will all do so. You got to be careful, but yeah. a lot of times they'll tell you the other area for practitioners. I would want them to look at is when you get an illustration on it, you'll see some kind of a disclaimer that says based on mm -hmm. these inputs, we don't think it's a mech. Look at the language. There are some carriers that use some funny language. Uh, and so, and there's some promoters out there, some uh, insurance marketing organizations that are very aggressive with the type of designs they do on life insurance policies. Mm -hmm. So you really got to be careful because some of these, um, I don't think they've been tested yet, but at some point uh, it takes that first IRS examination and now a lot of problems. Um, but be very careful when in doubt, when in doubt, you know, you could always go get a private letter ruling, I suppose, but be very careful of aggressive designs and the language, how they describe something as either being or not being a mech. Okay. Good, good, uh, good, uh, good advice. Or we'll stay away from the word advice. So that that's a good, good thing to, to think about. Um, last, last thing or two here i know you've done you know you've done a lot of work uh, as far as charitable giving and and grantor or charitable remainder annuity trusts so crats and cruts can you you know just give us a background on you know how you um i guess how you not i know mean, you're not in the legal business you don't set up the trust you work with attorneys uh but you know, just give us a little rundown on on crats and cruts if you if you don't mind and sure. you know, how you use them, how you identify whether you want to use them. Obviously, the client is coming to right. to you and, and, and saying, yeah, I want to give to the local church or hospital or whatever. So, so here's the basic idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, You have a client who's very charitable. They're involved in a charity and they want to have some kind of a legacy before they die. Right. Sure. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to give money after they're dead. It's they want to give money while they're alive as well. Okay. And so the idea comes from, well, I'm giving money anyway. Mm -hmm. I'd like to give more, but at the same time, I don't want my kids coming and saying, well, wait a minute, you guys, get, you know, mom, dad, you gave all that was otherwise going to come to us to this charity. What about us? Nah. And so what we use life insurance for is to basically make up the inheritance that otherwise was going to go to the kids. We basically, at this point, what we do is we say, okay, look, we're going to give our wealth to this charity, but after we're dead, okay. we're going to give life insurance to our kids. So that way our kids are happy and our charity is happy. You're basically doubling the size of your estate, let's say. Right, you're giving right. half to the charity, half to yourself. We're worth uh, ten million. We want to give entire ten million of our estate to you know my university, uh, but I don't want to cut the kids out. The two kids exact, so I want to leave them five million. Five. Right. Million. But what? Right. So then, what's the, the sorry? Go ahead. 
So from a structure perspective, mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're basically saying, okay, look, I'm going to give this highly appreciated property, let's say, that I have, okay? I'm going to donate it to charity. They could do whatever they want. But so long as I'm alive, I'm going to get income for the rest of my life from this charity back. Well, and in one second there, so you mentioned um, highly appreciated property. So why do I want to use that instead of, uh, I don't know, I'm sitting on 10 million in cash. Why okay. do I want to use the highly appreciated property instead of the cash? Avoid the tax, avoid the capital gains tax. Uh, right. All right. So I, if I sold it, I'd have a big capital gains tax. This is going to be yeah. a problem. Yeah, I got to a check for a couple million bucks or whatever. Right. I got highly appreciated assets. I got a highly appreciated stock. I'm going to donate it, get the full value, right? I'm not going to pay the capital gains tax myself and then give them the rest. I'll just give it to charity, right? Uh, and then charity now for the rest of my life is going to pay me back, let's say 5% of those assets. So I have some income coming in. I really don't need this income, but that's just the way it works. And I'll take the money. 5% that's that's coming back from, from the charity. Right? And now I'm going to take this money and I'm going to buy the biggest life insurance policy. Uh, okay. right? The biggest death benefit for my kids' benefit. And if I do this right, I'm going to take it out of my estate, put it in some kind of an islet, right? It's out of my estate, so it doesn't come back to my estate. Mm -hmm. And now my kids are happy. My charity's happy. You know, I've replaced the wealth. Right? And, and by it's, its nature. Oh, uh, sorry, I cut you off. What is it? No, I was going to say it's just the structure is such that. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to get the tax benefits of giving the donation, get the current benefits of the tax deductions. So like an offset against my current income, correct? correct. Yeah. Correct. And the income that I am taking back, that 5% that we're talking about, that's taxable income to me. I'm yeah. simply going to use that to pay the premiums, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not relying on this money. I was going to give it away. I just want to make sure that my kids aren't complaining that I didn't leave them. <laughs> hey, well, you'll be dead. You don't have to listen to them complaining. Yeah, them. yeah. But it, it's a way for me to take care of my family sure. and the things that I care about. Yeah, and you're you're replacing your estate that you're giving away as, as well. And then there's some, you know, obviously there's, you mentioned something about tax planning and we won't get into it here because for on the student, uh, for the students that are listening, uh, you know, they have plenty of work to do on charitable contributions and whether we're giving this to a 30 or to, or to a 50% uh, organization, a, you know, this is a private or a public charity. And, you know, is this a use related asset? Is it, are we using the fair market value or, or the basis? So we're not going to get into those. Those are the final, fi the minor, the, some of the finer details that students have to know. But now for clients or potential clients, what they can do is, look at this this uh, planning technique and they can not only help a charity or an, or an organization that they really want to or they love they can do that but they can also take care of their family or not or not cut them out and try to make the uh, uh, the, the process of passing things on after we pass away as smooth as possible and nothing goes exactly smooth smoothly after after death but we can at least uh, we can at least aim for, uh, it's a lot less uh, drama. Yeah, less I mean, I, I guess, you know, from a practitioner's perspective, uh, uh, this has been my experience, at least. Mm -hmm. Affluent clients will use permanent life insurance. Yes, there has to be a need for death benefit. But for the most part, it's used to solve some kind of a financial planning problem. Yeah. That is outside of just simple 
you know, we need the money for death benefit. Death benefit. I have to pay the mortgage or the car or the, the college right. education. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's for the most part, it has to do with leverage. It has to do with satisfying tax liabilities, estate equalization, and a host of other solutions that it provides, whether it's, you know, running a business, taking care of employees, mm -hmm. right? There has to be a death benefit need, obviously, yeah. but it's, it's really used to solve a financial planning problem. Correct. And, and the wealthier that, that, uh, that an individual or a family is, you know, it just seems like the less concerned that they are about the performance of their stocks in the way more concern that they have for tax efficiency and life insurance is certainly one of those. It's probably, it could be, we can have an argument about it, but it might be the best tool out there as far as tax efficiency is concerned, because what an asset out there is there where I pay into these premiums. Yeah. They're with after tax dollars, but then, you know, of course they have to pass away in most cases for that policy to, to pay off. Well, I'll tell you what, generally speaking, we should say. If you could find something in the, tax code mm -hmm. more tax advantageous than life insurance let me know yeah exactly there isn't and so if you utilize it the right way it, like i said earlier it's the swiss army knife i want to get back to something you said okay. about the wealthy people don't care about their performance of the stock i mean they they care but it's like right right, right. Area, I think. but here's what i was going to say mm -hmm. for most wealthy families right their wealth comes from some kind of privately held business yeah, for sure. A portion of it. And where they really get into stocks is really after a liquidation event. But their primary source of wealth is hardly ever their stock portfolio. Exactly. In Main Street America, where most of the wealth is in the 401ks, equity markets, let's say. Mm -hmm. But for um, the affluent families, it's typically some kind of a private, privately held enterprise. Right. And, and with that said too, and we won't get into it today, maybe we will do another, uh, have another conversation about maybe like a, a family limited partnership. So I know this is something that where we can set up general limited partnership interest and start gifting, you know, I keep, let's say mom and dad keep the general partnership interest, but the limited partnership interest, we can kind of shove off to the kids slowly, but surely over time. And we can also get valuation discounts there. So excuse me, I might have a $10 million business and I can over time get it out of my estate, but at a, at a, at a discount to the, to its value. And so maybe I'm just using this as an example, just rough example. Maybe I have a $10 million business. I want to get out of my estate. I still want to maintain the control over it, but I want to get the value of it out of my estate. I can do that over time. And with those gifts that I'm giving to the kids in the form of these limited partnership interests, I can get a valuation discount off of that. So, you know, that's something we might, we might talk about at another time, but. Yeah. Um, we should, yeah. because the timing of this with 2025 around the year uh, and the exemptions that, that are going to revert back, mm -hmm. we're kind of running out of time here and uh, do a little shameless plug here, but I had a, valuation discount guy on my show the other day we were talking about the specific issue uh by the way valuation discounts you know you need a certain type of accreditation to be able to do that so um as a you know for practitioners better make sure you 
um, become familiar with the destinations that are needed for that and make good friends because as we get closer to 2025, there aren't that many accredited valuation experts that could do valuation discounts. Oh, and if okay. you get in, if you're late in the back of the line, your client might not be able to, you might not be able to help your client. And I, I would say if you got a client right now that may need to do some kind of a, an analysis or evaluate to, to evaluation to some kind of gifting or, or transfer, um, it's go time right now. Yeah, the clock is certainly ticking. And I mean, this is unrelated to our discussion today. So the clock is also ticking because the, the loss on tax cuts, jobs acts, it uh, expires on its the exact date is what? December 31st. December 31, 2025. Uh, that's also the clock is ticking on the Roth IRA conversions, which I know you and I are talking to clients about uh, at least, you know, at least thinking about, uh, especially earlier in the year when the stock market fell. Usually the time to do these Roth conversions is when when tax rates are you know, reasonably reasonably low. And I think in your experience as a as a tax professional, would you say that tax rates, income tax rates right now are you know are are reasonable? Let's say for most Americans. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most favorable times in at least in my lifetime. Yeah. And uh, I mean there because if you're right now in the 24% bracket depending on where your income is, you're going to be popped up unless Congress changes something. You're going to be popped up into the 28% very likely. Well, no, it's going to happen, right? So if if you're if you're a retiree and you're in the 24% bracket now, we know come 2026, that's going to go to 28. At 28, so, yeah, depending on where you went, or, you know, then it was. Sure. But, well, assuming you retire, you're getting your social security benefit increases. So let's just assume, you know, right. you're, you're going to be you know, popping up. So, basically you're going to get a 4% hit. Mm -hmm. If you could say 4% now, you don't need that 4% in returns. Right. right. So from a tax planning perspective, we always talk about this. If you're going and, you know, by the time April 15 rolls along and you're looking at your taxes, it's too late. You should be looking three to five years ahead and yes. making projections and, and, and building the plan accordingly. Absolutely. Well, um, I think this was pretty good. I mean, we talked about a, a good number of complex topics, and I think what we did is a fairly, you know, fairly good job of just giving the big picture and getting a little bit into the details. So, uh, we'll, what we'll do is we'll end it here. I want to thank our guest Avo Mavilian from the Mavilian Financial Group, and uh, Avo, we'd love to have you on again. So, conversation that'd be awesome. I, you know, I you know, like to talk. Well, there's there's a there's a lot between those ears so you know we can we can go on for a long time but we're going to cut it there for uh for today and thanks again for joining the earn your marks podcast from pro exam tutors thanks Ed. all right take care thanks for listening to this episode of the earn your marks podcast for more information or to get in touch visit us at proexamtutors.com